let us pray together. Our God, today your Son is going to reveal to us in his words the great clash of the kingdoms of God and the kingdom of man. He will expose the very tension in which we find ourselves living today. Open our eyes and our ears to hear and receive his truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've studied the beginning words of Matthew chapter 11, we have seen John the Immerser's inner turmoil. Uh, on the one hand, languishing in prison, and on the other, hearing the works of the Messiah, who he knew to be the Messiah, who was not doing works of judgment, that he knew he would yet, not bringing in the kingdom, that he knew he would yet. This was a trial to him. We've looked at that. We've looked at Jesus' words about John's sterling godly character and his godly leadership. Uh, what we're going to see in today's words is Christ's revelation that John the Immerser was a pivotal person living at a pivotal point in God's plan of the ages. So we're going to see a, a great deal about God's kingdom program and what is happening at this point in the advance of his kingdom. Now, it's been three years since we had a sermon explaining what the kingdom of God was. That is sermon number seven in this series, and this is sermon number 113. So I thought it might be good to give a little review of what is meant by the phrase, the kingdom of God in scripture, because the phrase, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, and so forth, these uh, interchangeable phrases are used in three senses in scripture. So let's just remind ourselves, Roman numeral one, the meaning of the kingdom of God, by which I mean the meaning of the words used to refer to the kingdom of God. The first aspect of the kingdom of God, then, letter A, is the monarchical aspect. You just have to write the word monarch in there, M-O-N-A-R-C-H. Monarch means a lone ruler, one who rules himself, so this aspect of God's kingdom, hear me, it is eternal, it is universal, it is absolute. This aspect of the kingdom is an aspect of God's essence, of his very nature. Uh, God can no more not be king than he cannot be God. And so when, if you hear Christians using phrases like God suspended his sovereignty or canceled his sovereignty or limited his sovereignty, you might as well say that God limited his holiness or his goodness or his love. It, it can't be done. God is monarch. God is sovereign. God is supreme. He always has the last word. That's pretty much what God means. Amen? So let's see this in Scripture. Look at Psalm 93. It's a truth that makes some uncomfortable. It should not make Christians uncomfortable. Our salvation depends on it among a great many other things. So Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2, speak of this aspect of God's kingdom. Yahweh reigns. The Hebrew verb malak is just uh, like the noun melech, which means king. It, Yahweh is king. He is robed in majesty. Yahweh is robed. He's put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne, he says to God, is established from of old. You are from everlasting. This kingdom is eternal, absolute, universal. Turn to Psalm 103, and we'll look at verses 19 through 22. 
Psalm 103, verses 19 through 22. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens. And the part of the point of noting that is not that it has a particular location, as if it's in the heavens and not somewhere else, but being in the heavens, it's out of reach. It cannot be pulled down. It cannot be rebelled against. It cannot be toppled. He's established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless Yahweh, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless Yahweh, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless Yahweh, all his works in all places of his dominion. That's the place of his rule, and that's everywhere. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. So that is the first and fundamental aspect of God's kingdom, the monarchical aspect. He rules and reigns alone, always and everywhere. The second aspect is the mediated kingdom of God, the mediated rule of God. Mediated, M-E-D-I-A-T-E-D. And that word is some, it refers to something you do through someone. Someone is involved as a, a middleman, if you will, You're doing it, but he's acting as your go-between, your functionary. Well, what's the meaning here? There's two aspects of this, and the first, and they're chronological, really. They make sense when you think about them. The first is the creational aspect in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Have you ever noticed how the words uh, that God uses in creating man are kingdom words? They're rule words. Look at it again, Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. You could also translate them that you could also translate that that they may have dominion. Let us create them in our image and in our likeness that they may have dominion over the fish of the sea and over all creatures basically and over all the earth. So uh, uh, living and non-living. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The Hebrew verb is kabash, which sounds like kabash. But that's the idea. You overcome it. You subdue it. You be the ruler of it and have dominion over the fish. And then he lists off the categories of creation. So, is man being made king in God's stead? No, not at all. Of course not. But he's created in his image so that he can rule for him as the mediator over creation. God creates this entire world, this universe, lavishes it with wonders, and then wakes up man and says, this is yours to rule under me. I have created you to reflect my image so that you might rule. Kings in Moses' day would do this when they would conquer territories. They would put images of themselves there as if to remind everybody what do you figure? This is mine. (laughs) I'm the king. I'm in charge. And so here's Adam and Eve in God's image. And what's the message there? God rules. But God rules through their mediation. And there is a, a they're created to do that. I I think of this phase as being in two phases, the created phase and the crash. (laughs) The created phase we see in chapters one and two did not last very long in terms of the narrative of scripture. Uh, and because in chapter 3 they crash, they crash and burn they, they uh, don't exercise that mediation so what is the second phase of God's mediatorial rule the second phase is a theocratic kingdom which is to say a human kingdom over which God is the ultimate ruler but God has human rulers in that kingdom 
I will just read these to you. Um, Deuteronomy 17, but you can note them down, of course. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 15. Before they've even entered the land, God says, when you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom Yahweh your God will choose. So they may have a ruler, but it will be a ruler God chooses, because God is the ultimate ruler. The king does what? He mediates God's rule. The kingdom itself is a mediation of God's rule. Exodus 19 says, a kingdom of priests. So the kingdom itself was to represent God. And so you know this happened in 1 Samuel 8:22. God tells Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. They wanted to do the right thing, but they wanted to do it for the wrong reasons. Uh, that's another study. I'm not going to linger there except to say that you know their first king was named who? Who was the first king? Saul, correct. And did he rule uh, well? And not for most of his rule. He rebelled against God. And so Samuel the prophet tells him in 1 Samuel 13, 14, your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart and Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what Yahweh commanded you. And who was that man after God's heart? It was King David. And so David began the dynasty that would ultimately be the dynasty of Messiah, but the d dynasty that would rule over God's <clears throat> people, mediating God's rule. So this was a theocratic kingdom mediating God's rule. So then we have the monarchical kingdom of God, which is unchanging and eternal and absolute. We have the mediated kingdom. First phase of it was Adam and Eve. Second phase was the kingdom of Israel. Now we come to the third aspect because we know that both of those phases of that kingdom ended how? In success or failure? They both ended in failure. So we have the third aspect, which is the messianic kingdom. Messianic, M-E-S-S-I-N-I-C. And do you see here that, well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, so I'll probably repeat it, but do you see here the messianic kingdom marries both aspects? It is the rule of God and the rule of man because it is the rule of who? Messiah, who is, who is what? God and man. He is God and man. So it's the marriage of God's eternal kingdom and a mediated kingdom through God the Son, God the Son incarnate. What are some verses that talk about that? Oh, many. <laughs> there are many, many. But uh, Psalm 2 is one of them. Uh, you are my son. I've, I've appointed my king, king on uh, Mount Zion. I'll tell of the decree of the Lord. You are my son. This day I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you what? The nations. You'll break them as with a rod of iron. So this is about ultimately the Messiah and his king, his kingdom under God. Uh, one we'll look at, though, is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, which we think of as a Christmas verse, not for no reason, but it does remind us of more. Turn to Isaiah 9, if you would, please. So these Christmas words, but pick up on this theme in it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, parenthetically born to the house of David according to chapter 7 by a virgin, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government of this messianic kingdom. Uh, 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. These are things which, of course, were only ideals during all of human history. We have periods that approach towards them, but never characterized by peace and righteousness and godliness. But, but in Messiah's kingdom, that will be the case. And Messiah's kingdom comes up in the prophecy of Isaiah many times. But look at chapter 35 for just one more. Isaiah 35. And hopefully, if you're not already thinking it, you'll think you'll find this very familiar. There will be geographical, physical changes in this time. These words are literal, they're not spiritual. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. End of that verse, they shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God, to strengthen the weak hands and make the feeble knees firm. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And it goes on. Where do we hear those words? Jesus says those to John. Go tell John what you see. What do they see? Well, they see this. What's the message of that? Well, what do we, what do we see in Jesus? The powers of what? What are we studying right now in the sermon? The third phase of God's kingdom, which is the? And these are the powers of the messianic kingdom. That's what was present in the person and the ministry of Jesus. That's what was present in the proclamation and the ministry of the apostles he sent forth. These are the powers of the messianic kingdom. And that is the kingdom that John was preaching. That was the kingdom that Jesus was preaching. That was the kingdom that they were uh, announcing as being at hand to Israel. And in light of its imminence, imminence with an A, they were announcing their need to repent because that kingdom had drawn close. And to show that, there was the king uh, preaching the word of God and doing the works of God. So, three aspects, the monarchical, the mediated, and the messianic. And it's the messianic kingdom that John and Jesus were proclaiming as being at hand. Now you see that other places in the Old Testament as well. Daniel chapter 2, where the stone cut out without hands smashes the kingdoms of man and replaces them as a kingdom filling the earth. You see in Daniel chapter 7, where there's an image of four animals rising up out of the sea, and then comes one like a son of man from heaven, on the clouds of heaven, and he becomes the ruler over all, with all dominion, and all people serving him. You see, so this is the messianic kingdom, and that's the kingdom that they proclaim. And so it's odd to read of that kingdom being done violence. How can that kingdom be done violence? Verse 12 is very puzzling. So let's dig in here, Roman numeral 2, the violence done, the kingdom of God. Verses 11 through 15. I puzzled hard about how exactly to open this up and settled up 
settled on going over it verse by verse. <laughs> it just seemed the best. So first, let's look at the kingdom and John's person, verse 11. I told you we'd looked at that last week. I told you we'd look at it from a, a different angle, and so we do now. Jesus says, Amen, I say to you, one has not risen among those born of women greater than John the Immerser. Yet he who is smaller in the kingdom of the heavens is greater than he. Greater in what way? Well, not greater in character or accomplishment per se. He's not talking about that. The point of these, these words is not to put John down. What is it? It's to lift the kingdom up. And what a great thing the kingdom will be. And Jesus, in his words, speaks about that. Uh, look at a couple of verses. Look at uh, Matthew 13 and verse 43, just next door here, among the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. Matthew 13, verse 43, and uh, focus in on this. Then the righteous, then, then after the angels come and gather, verse 41, all causes of sin and lawbreakers out of his kingdom. So this is the kingdom coming. What will happen then? Verse 43, then the righteous, and that's just a, a word for the saints, the saved. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So this is going to be different. It's not now. Now they're oppressed. Now they're persecuted. Now they're abused. But then they will shine like the sun. Their position will be much higher. That's not John. Because the kingdom has not come. Obviously John's not in the kingdom. Because the kingdom has not come. If anyone would be in the kingdom, John would be. But Jesus, uh, Jesus would not then say, he who's greater in the kingdom, uh, less in the kingdom is greater than John. The kingdom had not come. Uh, another one, chapter 19, we'll look at verses 28 and 29. Matthew 19, verses 28 and 29. Another uh, pair that helps us understand what Jesus is saying here. Peter says, we've left everything and follow you. What, what then will we have? And Jesus answered him straight up. Verse 28, truly I say to you in the new world, that's, I don't love that translation. The Greek word is palingenesia, which really means the regeneration. So this is the, the newly created world, if you will, the newly generated world. Um, when the Son of Man will sit on his righteous throne, which he has not done and still has not done, when the Son of Man will sit on his, righteous thr his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Life in the kingdom of God will be greater than life now. John lived in this world, and so Jesus says, yes, he's the greatest in this world, but the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he because of his position, because of the kingdom of heaven, not because there's anything wrong with John. So that's the meaning of this phrase. The kingdom of God we see is not present. Maybe you've gone to churches where you've heard that the church is the kingdom of God. It is not. You've heard that the kingdom of God is present. It is not. You've heard that the kingdom of God came with Jesus' ministry. It did not. As Jesus says, it is still future, and it is great and glorious. This is not great and glorious. If you think this is the kingdom of God, you know, how do you like Satan being bound so far? Uh, that's going to happen during the kingdom of Messiah, and it's going to be a very different world, I tell you. Second, the kingdom in John's period, P-E-R-I-O-D. His period of ministry and life 
marked a pivotal time. Verse 12 says this, and, and he'll say even more in the words to come, but now we're going to focus on verse 12, which is a very challenging verse. So here's how I translate it. But from the days of John the Immerser until just now, the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence, and violent ones want to seize it. Now these are very different, difficult words, and if you were to look at uh, commentators and scholars, you would see a wide variety, uh, wide variety that combines variety and array. You'd see both of those <laughs> in what they say and what they think these words mean, and even how they translate the words. Now, this is not an academic lecture, so I won't set forth the seven leading theories on what these words, ver, words mean. I'll just open up to you what I believe they mean and why, and how to translate it and why. And we'll just do it in a series of questions. And the first and most obvious question is, what kingdom is Jesus talking about? What kingdom? He says, from the days of John the Immerser until just now, the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence. Well, in themselves, these words, the kingdom of the heavens, could mean any of the three aspects. Violent ones want to seize it. So which aspect is it? Is it the universal, absolute, monarchical kingdom of God? of course not. You can't do that violence. You can't try to seize it. Nothing can stop that. Is it the mediated kingdom of Israel? Well, that kingdom right now is really under Gentile rule. And so this is, and it's never the focus of Jesus preaching. So what aspect of the kingdom is it that he's talking about? The messianic kingdom, the kingdom that he proclaimed, the kingdom that was present in his person and in his ministry. So we're talking about the messianic kingdom. So plug that in then. Amen, I say to you, I'm sorry, from, but from the days of John the Immerser until just now, the messianic kingdom that I am proclaiming suffers violence. All right, it's the kingdom of Messiah. And now to the very difficult words, what does suffers violence and violent ones mean? Well, just step back a moment and ask yourself what violence means. What does it mean to do violence? What does violence connote? Isn't violence what one person or power does to impose its will on another? Isn't violence what you do when you're forcing someone against his will to do your will? You're trying to get or compel or force someone to do what you want him to do? So, and that's the meaning here. And let's, let's, let's plug that in and see what we start to, to, uh, to begin to understand. I'll open it up bit by bit. I think we'll all see it by the end. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, which is to say what? That there are people trying to impose their will on it. They're trying to control it. They're trying to bend it to their desires and their schemes, their expectations, their requirements, their demands, their assumptions, their biases, their prejudices, them in short. What is the kingdom of Messiah? It's God's rule through his son. But what do they want? We don't want this man to rule over us. What do they want? We saw it in Genesis 3. What do they want? You shall be as gods. They want to be gods. They want to remain in control. And so they hear of God's kingdom and they want to corral it. They want to oppose its proclamation and make it be what they want it to be. They want to impose their will on it by force. So how has the kingdom of God suffered violence uh, from John to that time? Well, remember, the kingdom of God is present and being offered 
in the person and ministry of Jesus and in the preaching of the kingdom of God. What's the first note we see in the Gospel of Matthew of the preaching of the kingdom of God? It's in the ministry of John the Baptist. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Remind yourself of that. So John comes and we read he appears in the wilderness of Judah preaching Judea preaching what verse 2 repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so he appears preaching the kingdom of heaven and what was the response well there were some individuals who did repent and receive his preaching but at the same time the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees came, verse 7, and he called them a brood of vipers and did not believe that their repentance was genuine. So why were they there? Well, that becomes more obvious as the gospel goes on. They were there to inspect and see if they couldn't get a handle on this, if they couldn't make this work to their interest. Well, what else was done to John by violent men? Look at chapter 4. It's just noted in passing at this point. Verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, oh, so he's preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and do angels appear and, and mount an army behind John? No, John's put in jail. A violent man imposes his will on John and stops him. Is he out preaching the kingdom of God now? No, he's in jail. I imagine he's talking to whoever he can in jail. But he's not out preaching the kingdom of God. He's been violently suppressed, hasn't he? And then go to chapter 11 and remind ourselves at the start of that, these words that we're studying right now, and we see in verse 2, John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. He was locked up at this point. And look at verses uh, 7 through 9. And look at it from this angle, will you? I, I know I looked at it from a leadership angle, but think of it from one other angle. When we read in verse 7 that Jesus says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed being shaken by the wind. Well, what is the wind? But the winds of the world trying to make John bend to its desire, imposing its will on him, or you could say, doing violence to him. Or look at the next uh, a man uh, dressed in soft clothing, those who are in soft clothing are in king's houses. Well, he was near a king's house now, perhaps, but not in the house. Where was he? He was in the dungeon because he would not submit to the will of the king because he called the king to account for his sin. And so he was done force. He did not uh, yield to the way of kissing his way up and compromising his message uh, as the world would have him do. Now, the kingdom of God was done violence in that way in his preaching. Well, what about Jesus himself? John was born before Jesus was. So what, what's, what's done to little baby Jesus? What does the other Herod try to do? He tries to kill him. He has to flee to Egypt, and he's just a baby. He is forced. Violence is attempted on him to stop him altogether. Uh, but then think of something else from another angle. I, you see, I translated this violent ones it's not necessarily violent men. It's just violent persons or personages. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is led up into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And what do all these temptations amount to, if we can remember our study of it? What, what, is the, what, is, what does Satan's approach to Jesus amount to? 
All these amount to trying to get him to exercise his will rather than being the servant of the Lord. In other words, rather than being the fulfillment of messianic prophecy, Jesus should feed himself by just exerting his power because God obviously hadn't cared for him. And Jesus should tempt God to catch him by angels by jumping off the temple. And Jesus should uh, steer around the cross altogether by, oh, little technicality, worshiping Satan, and then Satan would just give him all the kingdoms of the world. All of these are attempts to do violence to Jesus as the kingdom of God present and the proclamation of the kingdom of God in him. You see, so it's been going on right from the start. It continues, of course, in the works of evil men. Look at Matthew chapter 9. And remember, verses 2 and 3, as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, uh, verse 2, he sees this paralytic, and he tells him his sins are forgiven. But what are the scribes' response to that? That he must be God incarnate. No. (laughs) The response in verse 3 is, this man is blaspheming. And you know that that, that, that seed, well, let's say that cancer cell in their mind does what cancer cells do. It, it multiplied in their diseased souls. And so you look at, at verse um, 11, the Pharisees challenge him and they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They don't see the mercy of God and the kingdom of God coming to the poor, as prophecy said that it would, uh, they object to what he's doing and they have no interest. And, and look at uh, the end of that chapter when Jesus casts a demon out of a demon-oppressed man and people are marveling at this. What do they say? Verse 34, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Something maybe they just floated as a trial balloon at that point to see if that would stop Jesus but later in chapter uh, 12, as we'll see, it, it bursts into full-blown, settled position, blasphemy, and leads to a very strong response from Jesus and a turning point in this gospel, as we will see. So John has done violence through his ministry. Jesus has done violence through his ministry. What about the heralds of the kingdom? Well, uh, Jesus predicts violence in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You're blessed when men persecute you, he says in chapter 5. But look at chapter 10. Remember, this is where he sends them out. And what does he send them out to preach? Verse 7, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they went out as emissaries of the kingdom. And what response did he tell them to expect? Violence. To expect to be done violence. Look at verses 16 and following. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Uh, Don't worry, you will be able to give testimony, but they will try to stop you. And verse uh, 21, brother will deliver over brother, father, child, children rise against parents. And verse 22, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. So because they go out as proclaimers of the kingdom, they'll be hated, they'll be persecuted, they'll be done violence. Uh, And then the Son of God will finally come. You can see also verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body. Did you say something about killing? 
Yes. So the kingdom of heaven, he, he leads them to expect, will be done violence. It'll be done violence in its first preacher, John the, the Immerser. It's done violence in the person and ministry of Jesus, who is the kingdom's presence. And those who serve him and proclaim that kingdom also suffer violence. So this is the meaning of the violence, the attempt of the world, the attempt of the kingdom of man to impose its will by force. Well, what do these words seize mean? I translate it, violent ones want to seize it. You could also translate that violent ones try to seize it. It is a nuance of the Greek present tense. You can't possibly care, but it's called uh, the conative or the tendential or the inchoative sense. And what you just need to know is the idea, it's, it's something that is attempted or somebody wants to do, but he is unable to complete it. Obviously, they can't seize the kingdom of God because it's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of the heavens. But they try to. They want to. They attempt to seize it. Well, what does it mean to seize it then? Matthew only uses this verb seize, or we see it on the lips of Jesus in his gospel three times. Once here in chapter 11, again in chapter 12, again in chapter 13. So the other two meanings are going to help us see what this means. Look at chapter 12. And verse 29, sadly, most translations translate it three different ways in all three verses. Even the LSB does. So, uh, but it's the same word. And if it were translated by a simple translation like seize, you would see the connection. So chapter 12, verse 29. Um, he says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder. Well, actually, there's our word. I would just translate it seize. Seize his goods unless he first binds the strong man. So what's the meaning of seizing his goods? Obviously, it's the idea of me taking something that doesn't belong to me away from the person it does belong to so that it can be mine. Well, let's see if that same meaning uh, uh, maintains in the, in the, obtains in the, in the next, which is in chapter 13, and verse 19. It's in this parable of the sower, and you remember the first seed lands on hard ground and the birds peck it away. And Jesus explains that in verse 19 by saying, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and, hears the word, seizes it. The ESV says, snatches away what has been sown. He seizes it. So it's the word of the kingdom, and rather than doing good to the man who hears it, Satan snatches it. He takes it away so that he can't have it and it can be his. So now let's uh, go back and plug that in to this verse. From the days of John the Immerser until just now, the kingdom of the heavens suffers violent and violent ones who want to impose their will on it, want to snatch it, want to seize it, want to make it theirs. Take it away from the one it belongs to and put it under their control. So what is that talking about? I think we'll understand if we uh, put together two verses and then talk about them a little bit. Go back to the gospel, I'm sorry, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. And the place where Jesus announce, is announcing the theme of the whole sermon. And he says this in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of the heavens. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that, that the scribes and the Pharisees have 
a kind of righteousness. But what isn't their kind of righteousness? It's not kingdom righteousness. They have something you could call righteousness, but it's not kingdom righteousness. And if that's all they have, they won't enter the kingdom. Well, if that's the case, then who also is not going to enter the kingdom according to this verse? Okay, let's read it again. 520. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Of the, of the kingdom of heaven. So if they just have that righteousness and they won't enter the kingdom of the heavens with that, who else is not going to enter the kingdom of the heavens according to this verse? The scribes and the Pharisees. You see? They have a righteousness, but they will not be entering the kingdom of heaven. Well, what more can we say about them and the kingdom of heaven? Turn toward the end of the gospel, Matthew 23, and verses 13 and 15. <coughs> we pair these together, it will tell us a lot. In this chapter, he's just raining fire on the scribes and the Pharisees, the law experts. And we see in verse 13... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So, Verse 13, focus there. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't enter. You won't let them enter. What does that mean? Put it together with what we've been seeing going on in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We see that whenever people start speculating that Jesus might be the Messiah, what do the scribes and Pharisees do? They jump in and they say, oh no, he's casting out demons by what? by Beelzebub. And we'll see it again in chapter 12 where people are marveling and they're saying, could this be the Messiah? And they, hearing that, jump in and say, oh no. Everything he's doing, he does by the power of Beelzebub, Satan. So what are they doing there? Well, first of all, let's talk about what they're not doing. What are they not doing? What is the preaching that's been going on for all this time? Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Well, what aren't they doing? Repenting. What else aren't they doing? Aren't they doing? Or what I could say, what are they doing? They're making sure that no one else repents either. They're not going to listen to what Jesus says and bow the knee to him, and they don't want anybody else doing that either. And this is exactly what we see in chapter 23. You won't enter in, and you stop anyone who wants to enter in from entering in. You tell, oh no, no, no. Don't listen to that guy. He just does what he does by the power of Beelzebul. So you see, these are violent men who are trying to snatch the kingdom away. They want to snatch. They try to snatch the kingdom away. They try to seize it so that nobody can have it. Why? Because of what their kind of righteousness is. Because they don't care to repent. So let's let's plug this all together, number four, and talk about what the whole verse means now, now that we know what every part means. Let me just ask you, what was the fundamental preaching? What was the fundamental call that John, Jesus, and his apostles all made. They all said what? Repent. What does repentance mean, basically? Repentance means surrender. Repentance means that I admit that I've been doing it wrong. I've been thinking wrong. I've been living wrong. I've made a mess of it. And so 
I just, I back away, I, well, let's say I, I turn from it and I turn to God in, in submission. I yield to him. That's what repentance is. It's turning from sin to God the Lord and calling on him for mercy and submitting myself to him. That's what repentance is. The core idea of repentance is yielding to God. What's the opposite then of yielding to God? Rebelling trying to control, trying to seize and impose my will on it. And when you seize and impose your will on something, what's that? Violence. And that's just what Jesus is talking about. That people have done violence to the kingdom of God because they will not repent. And what's more, they don't want anyone else to repent either. And, and ultimately, you know, you see again and again, they take counsel about Jesus. And what is the, what is the um, topic of these meetings? How do we shut him up? How do we destroy him? How do we make it so nobody ever hears him speak again? We better kill him. That's the only way to be sure that this whole Jesus thing is done. Well, how'd that work out? Not well. But that's because they are on the wrong side. The best they could do is try to seize it because they're just men. And this is a work of God. So, insisting on my will, violence, seizing I don't want it. I don't want anyone to have. And that's what these chapters show. That's what Matthew 11 and 12 is all about. That the, this response of the Pharisees is not just theirs. Because remember, the, towards the start of chapter 11, we're, we're going to see it next week, Lord willing, Jesus says, this generation rejected John and me. And at the end of chapter 12, what does he say over and over again? This generation, this generation, gen this generation. It is the leaders, yes, but it's everyone who follows them in their rebellion, in their violence, in their seizing, and not repenting, which is just exactly like our generation, that, that, that wants everything and anything except submitting to God. That, as um, Doug Wilson put it very well, uh, we've just become a bunch of creatures who want to be creators. Uh, we don't want to yield to God in any way we want to have our own will in every way. And so we look at that generation and said, oh my. And let's look at our generation and say, oh my. <laughs> Here we go again. It's the same thing. How did it work out for them? About the same way it's going to work out for us. So now we're going to re return to this idea. But, but having understood these words then, I hope, let's turn to verses 13 and 14 and talk about the, the kingdom and John's position. How, has he, how is he positioned in God's redemptive plan? His position. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was going to come. So let's talk first of John's relationship to the OT. Just made it easy for you. The Old Testament. And every time somebody says OT meaning overtime, I always think Old Testament. But uh, that's my grid. The OT, the Old Testament, verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Boy, just a few words, but that says an awful lot. First of all, it, it reminds us that the law and the prophets are prophetic. That the, the, the law and the prophets is a way of saying the Old Testament uh, to Jesus' hearers. And the whole of it is prophetic, which just is to say the whole of it points forward not meaning necessarily every word and every occurrence, but the whole of it. The law of Moses points forward to Christ. The prophet's preaching 
points forward to Christ. The history points forward to Christ in, in a great many ways, but the, the thought of all of it is to point forward to Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus says in, in uh, Matthew uh, 5.17 at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.17. What does he say in Matthew 5.17? Don't think I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to... Because they all point forward to him. And he came to fulfill them. Now, all, Jesus says all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Normally you say law and prophets, but he says prophets first because he's talking about a prophet. John. So all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Prophesied until John. Now that reveals us uh, something very important. First of all, it reveals that if we can read the Old Testament and not see that it points forward to Christ, or if we read it in some way that leaves Christ out and just makes it uh, a collection of nice stories and rules for life, then we've missed what it's all about. We've, we've missed what it's pointing forward to. It's like we've seen the MC coming out to introduce the band, and then when he leaves the stage, we applaud and leave the theater. <laughs> Wait, no, it's, we didn't come to see the MC. And I, I don't mean to say the Old Testament is just an MC, but I do mean to say it points forward to Christ. If we don't hear it doing that, we're not hearing what it's saying to us. As, Moses, as Jesus said to the people who uh, wouldn't believe him, he said, Moses will testify against you. He spoke of me, and you're not listening to him. So they pointed forward to Christ. But look, this also reveals to us two great phases. What phases? Prophecy and fulfillment. Because he says, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. What does that mean? Until John came, they were all pointing forward and saying, this will happen, this one will come. But what did John the Baptist come to say? He's here. He's here. So John is li living at a pivotal point in God's redemptive plan where prophecy becomes fulfillment. And he's living in the days of that beginning, the days of the beginning of fulfillment. He himself, not in the kingdom of God yet, but announcing it's right here in Jesus. John lives at the juncture when prophecy becomes fulfillment. That's in relationship to the Old Testament, but let's also talk about John's position in relation to Christ. And if you're willing to accept it, he himself is Elijah who is going to come, Jesus says. Well, he's referring to the prophecy in Malachi 4, verse 5, which says that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah will come, the great prophet of the Old Testament. So what does that have to do with John? We're going to come back to this in chapter 17. But just to say briefly now, in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel tells John's father that John will go before the Messiah. How does he say it? in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, I, I should make clear that there's no thought of reincarnation. Reincarnation is not a thing. Reincarnation is a doctrine of devils. There is no such thing as reincarnation, so there was never a thought that John would be reincarnated. But remember John's, uh, sorry, uh, that Elijah would be reincarnated. But remember, Elijah's spirit was put on Elisha and Elisha did a ministry under the spirit of Elijah who was taken alive into heaven. Well, here comes John in the what? 
spirit and power of Elijah telling Israel Messiah is here. And if they had accepted his ministry, then very different things would have happened than did happen. But they did not accept his ministry. And so scripture says that there will be a second coming of uh, Elijah to prepare the day of the Lord. Uh, You read about it in Revelation chapter 11. One of the two witnesses is very much like Elijah. And he prepares the way for the second coming of Christ. But uh, John the Baptist comes in fulfillment of this prophecy in the first coming of Christ. If the Jews had received his ministry, things would have gone very differently. We're not, we're not sure exactly how they would have gone. They just would have been different. But in the, in the counsels and plan and decrees of God, this is the way they were to go and did go. So the kingdom and John's position, verses 13 and 14. Finally, the kingdom and each person in verse 15. Such a little bit, you'd think we would just kind of skip that, but we, we mustn't. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, it's interesting Verse uh, 14 is plural. So if I were to King James it up, I do miss that King James lets you distinguish plurals and um, singulars, but, well, I guess we could do that. Uh, He says, and if y'all are willing to accept it, so then don't need to go back that far. If y'all are willing to accept it, he himself is Elijah who is going to come. That's plural, but here it's individual. He, an individual. Any individual who has ears, let that individual hear. Why is that important? Because this section is going to make clear that that generation did not have ears to hear, did not hear it, and were judged by God. But does that mean every last individual? No, indeed. Some individuals did. And so Jesus' ministry is going to pivot from an emphasis on the nation of Israel, who rejects him, to any individual, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He who does the will of my father, that's my mother and brother and sister, Jesus says. So any individual is going to be the shift now. Any individual still must hear and must respond. So now, as we, as we put this all together and think about it, I can easily hear somebody thinking, well, you know, that's all very interesting. But I I don't see it as being relevant because Jesus isn't here and and these things aren't going on. Oh, you don't think it's relevant? (laughs) Um, Are we still preaching about the kingdom? Well, what does Jesus say in John 3? He says, unless one is born again, he cannot what? See the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of water and the spirit, you you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Do we still talk about being born again? We certainly do. And what happens when a person is born again? He becomes a citizen of the kingdom of God. Colossians 1.13. He transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. Colossians 1.13. Yes, this is what redemption does for us today. It's what salvation does. Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. So yes, we very much talk about these things today. They're still very much uh, germane and... and, um, current, if you will. Uh, So can we say that the kingdom of Christ suffers violence? Well, what, what is our preaching today? It's not the kingdom is at hand because Christ has gone away and he will come back. But what do we preach? We preach the gospel of Christ. Could you say the gospel of Christ suffers violence? 
Oh, I got it quickly. <laughs> That's a good response. Amen. I amen you. Yes, the, the gospel of Christ suffers violence. Could we say that violent men try to seize it? Yes, we could. We could say they started doing that in the first century. We see it in the pages of the New Testament. Somebody said to me, well, you know, the, the uh, Roman Catholic Church, you know, ought to be the true church because they're the oldest. And I said, how old is heresy? When did heresy start? When did the first people start denying the incarnation? When did people start denying the resurrection? When did people start becoming antinomian? When did that start? In the New Testament. Did it keep up in the, since the New Testament? Oh, yes, indeed. Rome came up with its traditions of man and its, its counterfeit gospel. Yes, they've done the gospel violence and tried to seize it. But not just them. What about critical race theory? What about those who turn the gospel into a political uh, agenda and try to replace it with Marxism and socialism and say that's what the gospel is really about? Aren't they doing the gospel violence and trying to seize it? What about those who see the gospel as a, a program of self uh, improvement with positive thoughts to make us be better people. Is that the gospel? That's not the gospel. That's doing the gospel violence and trying to seize it. What about those who turn the gospel in a way that we can make God our servant and have him give us all our dreams and our best life now uh, because God's just there to give us what we want. Is that what the gospel is or is that doing violence to the gospel and trying to seize it? All of those are ways of doing violence to the gospel and trying to seize it. Violent men try to seize the gospel, but the gospel is still the gospel. And every counterfeit, violated, perverted gospel is just a formula to damnation. Every one of them will work just as well as the ideas of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes did. Every one of them will lead to the same doom and damnation. and It all amounts to the same cult of me. I mean, what did we see in the Sermon on the Mount? The whole righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was really a series of formulas to control God. That if, if you dot this I right and cross this T right, then you make God your servant. You'll be okay with God by what you do. So we'll just uh, bring it down to a level we can all manipulate rather than being something from a heart of repentance and of actual sold out uh, yielding and submission to God you see so as was their spirit so has that spirit continued and so does the kingdom of man still do the gospel of Christ suffers violence and violent men try to seize it and make it their own but they can't do it because it's the gospel of God and as Paul says, though we are an angel from heaven proclaim to you another gospel, let him be damned to hell. Because there's only one gospel that, that will save. It's the gospel of God. It's the unhyphenated gospel we find in Scripture. Uh, we should not do it violence. We should fall down before it in repentance and, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Christ said then, I say now, he who has ears to hear... Let him hear. Violent men will always try to do violence to the kingdom and to seize it by force and to the gospel and to seize it by force. But his kingdom will come and his gospel will prevail. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the truth of the word of God. We've, it leaves us with only two choices. We can either try to do violence to God's word try to seize it and be damned or we can repent and throw ourselves on God's mercy and be saved. Those are the only two choices and I urge you, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. 
If you've not yet trusted in Christ, you're a fool to try to play out the clock. You are a fool to try to play out the clock. You don't know how much time's left on it. Repent and believe. And to you who do believe, I say, blessed is the one who does not stumble. Hang in there. Keep trusting. His kingdom will come. All his promises will come true. And one day, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters fill the seas. Let us pray together. And then let's just take a moment to think about these things and you can jot down whatever comes to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Christ. We thank you for their truth, (coughs) their timeless truth and their power. Please bring them through to our hearts in a very personal and powerful way as we now take a few moments to reflect on them, to pray, to jot down action items.